minutes when this balloon of yours goes up. Forces of anarchy, wreckers of law and order. You see? Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. You see? Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Hello, everybody. Uh, today we're with uh, Dr. Keith Crome from the Manchester uh, Metropolitan University. Keith is a senior lecturer in philosophy, and you are the program leader for philosophy at MMU. Is that right, Keith? Yeah, that, that's right. I am the acting program leader, current program leader for philosophy. Okay. Um, so today we're going to be talking to you about uh, sort of some of your general interest in philosophy. And one of the things I'm interested in is. Um, your uh, your interest in uh, Lyotard, Jean Francois Lyotard, the uh, the French philosopher. I, well, first I'll ask. I begin by asking you: Is uh, do you think Lyotard is falling out of favor a little? <laughs> but I, he certainly fell out of favor. Um, he was uh, Lyotard was uh, most renowned in the uh, English speaking world for the publication of a very short uh, work, the Postmodern Condition. Uh, it was nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, around the end of the around the end of the seventies, maybe the start of the eighties, uh, and it. Uh, I don't know if it sparked the debates over post modernity and post modernism uh, that uh, flourished, uh, sort of t- took hold of, of academia, certainly uh, the humanities, uh, in the in the early eighties. I don't know if he if the book sparked that interest, but it was certainly. Uh, an integral part of that, and Lyotard became very famous, much to the detriment of his his other work, and subsequently uh, interest in his work declined, probably a bit through that association. So the postmodern condition isn't really a representative uh, piece of work for him at all. But uh, interest uh, is uh, there. There are certainly a small and devoted group. <laughs> of uh, people who work on Lyotard's writings. Um, he's, he's dead now, died in 1998. Uh, but there does seem to be something of a revival of interest. So there are some very good new scholars working on Lyotard's work who are doing really interesting work. Uh, unfortunately, they seem to be contesting some of the claims I've made it's nice that, that they actually read it but they their, their contestations are rather convincing I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is some there, there's some good work and uh, very uh, in in about 2010 I think uh, Lyotard's first major work uh, discourse figure was published in in an English translation so the English English translation of the work had been uh, announced probably it's in the in the 80s so it's taken a long time for it to come out uh, and it's it's concerned Lyotard's concern in, in discourse figure is with art and also around the same time but probably 2012 2011 2012 to around 2014 Leuven University Press published six volumes of his writings on art contemporary art and contemporary artists and that seems to have generated uh, a lot of interest in Lyotard and art. So it's, it's growing, really. I think it's unfortunate, I guess, because when you think of 
you know, what's called postmodern philosophy, um, you think of, I mean, Lyotard is probably the last person you go to for sort of for better or worse. Because, I mean, you, go, you probably think of Derrida or Foucault or thinkers like that. But, like, I would say, at least I'd say, Lyotard is, is, like, much maligned and probably a lot more interesting than he than he's given credit for. I, I think, like, that the postmodern condition is a very, very interesting book, you know? So, I mean, what 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 is he trying to achieve in that? I mean, it's... It's, it's a report on knowledge, isn't it? That's how it started out. Yeah, the government in Quebec. Uh, mm. I suppose. I mean, it, it, very famously, what he's what he argues in that book is that that the postmodern can be defined as the decline of the grand narratives uh, that were used in and around the time of the Enlightenment uh, to and later in modernity to legitimate knowledge and social progress. So he's talking about, uh, well, ideas of enlightenment, of social progress, of political emancipation that would underpin our concerns with the development of knowledge. And he's saying that those those narratives are, are or ideologies are no longer effective. They no longer motivate governments or peoples or states. So this is his fam- famous, the famous term, the incredulity towards metanarrative, which is probably... Most well known yeah. for in the anglophone world, uh, yeah. what what are those meta narratives then, in a very elementary sense? Uh, the meta narratives uh, in question would be the narrative of uh, emancipation, emancipation of the people. So, for example, if you think about the the French Republic, the development of the French Republic, uh, they would see all. Uh, Social activity or development of knowledge is serving that goal, the emancipation of a people. So the idea that we become liberated or free through our knowledge, the acquisition of knowledge, that would be one example of such a narrative. Uh, More recently, what he says is that contemporary knowledge, and I mean, this is, you know, it could be... you could say that Lyotard was quite far-sighted. He was writing in the in the in the seventies, late seventies, but he said the, the the purpose that knowledge serves, that legitimates the uh, development and acquisition of knowledge, so science and technology, is simply making a profit. Right, right. So you know he he's he's really anticipating what we would now call the development of neoliberalism, and he. He certainly says at the beginning of the postmodern condition that the account he's giving is a very partial picture of the development of knowledge uh, in the most highly developed societies at the time. Uh, now, I guess we would say that it's more or less universal. So everything serves profit. Okay. <laughs> yes. So this 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 book, the postmodern condition, then it's it's I think it's. Would it would it be fair to say that it's often interpreted as saying that postmodernism is something positive? It's a celebration of postmodernism and a celebration of difference. It's a celebration of fragmentation. When in fact it might be more of a sort of a lament about the state of knowledge, the state of emancipation, the state of politics. Well, I, I think I think it's I think it's both things. So, what 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 I didn't say is that Lyotard is is deeply critical of the idea that that knowledge can be legitimated or made to serve the interests of making a profit. 
so he's, he, he, he says that, in fact, progress in the sciences, uh, in the contemporary sciences, doesn't occur in the way that would allow it simply to serve that motive. It, it, it's, it's forced into it, but there's a certain forcing of it, if you like. Uh, and he tries to give a different account of the way in which knowledge can develop and which would actually serve the ends of social justice. And that, I suppose, is where you get the, the idea that the postmodern, and this is what Lyotard's trying to endorse or give a positive account of, would be a celebration of difference of play. So he sees that, that science moves and develops itself in that way. That's how, he says, contemporary scientists understand the development of their own disciplines. So they're unpredictable, they develop through differences, so they're not seeking a consensus or agreement between partners in the scientific game. That would be a, a modern idea of science. So, in fact, it goes all the way back to Plato. Plato says, you know, a mark of truth is that it elicits consensus amongst those that are involved in the in the in the search for knowledge. So then it's a case of I mean in the modern sense of truth or even in the platonic sense that you outlined, Leotard is saying that things like science and technology and the accumulation of knowledge is very, very interested as opposed to being disinterested, I guess, or transparent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But that would be Leotard's point. I mean the elicitation of consensus in the end, produces silence. You know, the dynamic, the development of knowledge must imply differences and disagreements. Okay. Now, it's interesting that uh, you brought up Plato there, because one of your sort of key interests, Keith, is um, sort of ancient philosophy. And you've written a really, really good book on this. You've written uh, Leotard and the Greeks, which is where you have uh, done a, a sort of a study of um, a sort of a historical comparison between... Um, Leotard and sort of a, some of the pre-Socratics and the Sophists and things like that. And what I'm interested in is what is it that draws you to ancient philosophy generally? <laughs> it's sometimes I think it's, it's 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 quite difficult to put put a finger on what it is that that actually draws you to, to something that that excites you uh, about it. So you know that's a uh, I'm not I'm not being disingenuous. It's mm. it's a, a it's a difficult question to answer, and I think it's also an important point that uh, if if you start to understand your motivations, uh, then they lose their hold on you. Or to put it in a more Hegelian fashion, one one always misrecognizes what it is that drives uh, one in 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 any form of endeavor. Really, so you, you you misunderstand your own motivations more often than not, but. Yeah, I, you know, if 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 I were at, at, attempting to, despite that qualification, despite those sort of reservations I have about answering that question or being able to answer that question adequately, I'd say what you know what what interests me about about Plato. In in one sense, it's it really is the sort of crucible, the the, the matrix of of philosophy. So I don't think Plato says everything that there is to say philosophically, but you can you can see the sort of generation of a of a of, of, of a form of inquiry that has shaped and driven the development of the West in Plato's works, and and I like that. But again, you know Plato's Plato's works, and this is just to talk about Plato really. Yeah, what's interesting, so despite the qualifications and the hesitations I have about being able to, to say what it is that, that really 
you know that that really drives my interest in in Plato. He's, Plato really is the foundation of philosophical inquiry, and you can understand a lot about the development of the philosophical tradition by going back to Plato and reading him. But but even so, it's Plato is at once the foundation of our modern philosophical understanding, and, uh, and perhaps perhaps even to use a you know a, 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 a world view. Uh, he's he's also opaque. So, you know, I can't say that I understand Plato that well. I read Plato and, you know, I read it and I think there's there's something there's something so profound and difficult about what he's doing that's so perhaps alien to the way in which we think, despite the fact that you could characterise our mode of thinking as Platonic, there is something in Plato's text that exceeds Platonism itself. But that's you know it's finding that and trying to grapple with that that which is at the limits of thought that really interests me in Plato. And do you think that's does that then revolve around the question of truth for you in some sense? Because I mean, that's the I mean if you're in if you're if you're looking at sort of Leota and the Greeks, I mean the question of sophistry directly pertains to the discourse on truth in some sense. Yeah, I mean, yes, it is. Yeah, I suppose it 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 it. It, it connects with the way in which we... I'm interested in the way in which truth is constituted in Plato's works. And but by that, I mean, you know, the, Plato, Plato develops, opens up the possibility of there being truth. So one way in which... It, if I can, perhaps I can make that clear what I'm, what I'm really trying to get at and what, I, what I'm talking about is... By, by referring to the sort of responses to Plato uh, that that I get quite often from undergraduate students, so those students, they most students like reading Plato. When when they when they get to do it, they get maybe they some get a bit bored of it after a while because there's a lot of Plato to read, but they always think that they they engage with it and then they criticise Plato. So they, they try and point out what's wrong with Plato. Now, in one respect, that's a very good thing for a student to do. You want a student not simply to accept unquestioningly uh, the, the arguments and the doctrines that they're being taught, but to use and develop their own critical uh, faculties. Uh, and that's something that philosophy really encourages. But to me, at the same time, as it's, it's something that's very good, it doesn't make much sense to say Plato is wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So Plato, the reason Plato's, the, the question doesn't really get to the nub of the, the uh, what's at stake when, you, when, when in Plato's works and when you read Plato. And what I mean by that is Plato actually opens up the space or the possibility of truth. So he himself creates an, a, a sense of what truth actually is. And so by definition, he's prior to any being right or wrong, true or not true, uh, in his own writings. And that's, I think, where you, you, you start to get the political dimension as well in terms of what Plato's, Plato's actually doing. So the, the question of the opening up the space or the place of truth that we, we inhabit is connected for Plato with the question of politics and the, the, the development of a political state. 
That's the truth is a political question and for Plato, first and foremost. Yeah, so I alluded to, to Plato's, uh, or referred to Plato's test for truth being consensus. And what Plato is actually saying there is, you know, it, we in order for something to be true, the condition of truth is that we all agree or we all look at the world in the same way. And that means if we look at the world in the same way and then there is truth for us, we actually form a genuine community. So, right, so consensus then leads into community, yeah. Yeah, or consensus is community. It's, yes. It's precisely that agreement, yeah. So that's that's well, precisely what's at stake in his work. Right, so that, that's a very um, different, I think, or is it a broader understanding of truth than you would get in, I guess, more conventional understandings of truth and philosophy, you know, where truth is consensus between, I don't know, a subject and a state of affairs in the world or... Or truth is coherence, or truth is correlation. Yeah, it's it is it is a much it's it's perhaps a, a notion of truth that is prior to that. So those are uh, well worn and accepted definitions mm. of 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 truth. Yeah, yeah, the two the two two correlative. I think that you, you know again, you asked me that question, and it's a it's it's I suppose it's one of the the really interesting things that interests me about Plato's work and about ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, again, and you know that it's. That's probably a direct a direct consequence of my interest in Lyotard. So Lyotard mm. was an explicitly political philosopher, and I think uh, it's Lyotard's political uh, commitments and his his passion for politics that makes him him one of the more interesting French in, intellectuals of his generation. So I I actually think his his work. I wouldn't say he was a better philosopher than Derrida or a better philosopher than Foucault or Deleuze. And I'm not even really sure what that, that would mean. But I'm sure that a lot of people would contest uh, the claim that he was even their equivalent. You, you mm. know, again, you talked about the interest in Lyotard waning. And I don't think his reputation is, is as, as, as strong or as uh, great as any of those, those three thinkers that I've just mentioned. But he's, he's really interesting as a political thinker. He was, he was a member of... Uh, a radical Marxist group. So in the so in the early fifties, socialism or barbarism. Or yeah, socialism or barbarism. A small sort of sometimes they're called Trotskyists, but I don't think they were there. <laughs> uh, but they, yeah, very small and very radical French group. It's, it became very influential in its in its own right. So its other members were uh, Claude Castoriadis and uh, Lefort uh, Le as well. Um, so two two major sort of French intellectuals from around the time, uh, but but Lyotard was was a committed Marxist and he was a committed Marxist for ten twelve years, uh, and in fact didn't publish very much other than political pamphlets, some most of which were anonymous as well. So he wrote for Socialism or Barbarism, and he was their expert on uh, Algeria and the Al Algerian independence struggle. Um, but his political commitments really inform all of his work, and you see that in the postmodern condition as well. So this current concern about for the legitimation of knowledge and postmodernity, and the idea in which in which the development of knowledge can serve the ends or support social justice, is a concern that comes out of that, and it directly relates. It's the inverse correlation of the the idea that uh, a a, tr a true world demands consensus. He says no. It's you know what we what we what knowledge develops, and uh, the development of knowledge occurs through dissent and disagreement, struggle, polemic, and so he he produces 
accordingly a different notion of community. So that would be a community that is structured by its its differences and divisions uh, rather than its mm. identity. Okay, so what would you say then to, I guess, someone who would say that that is precisely the nihilistic condition of the age, you know, the idea that it's, it's, it's difference that leads us away from truth, it's fragmentation that's besetting the world at the moment, you know, we're talking sort of, you know, we're talking, you know, we talk about this idea that we're all in different silos now in social media. We're all in different bubbles. We're all in different little atomized uh, centers without any uh, effort to uh, forge a sense of community which transcends them. I think, I think, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's a fair question as well. And it's a sort of, it's a question I, 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 I sometimes ask myself, especially, uh, when I when I open the the paper and read about Donald Trump and <laughs> <laughs> the, the idea of fake news as well and and all of all of that sort yeah, of yeah I've seen I've stuff. seen articles which have you know sort of com- directly compared Trump to say some yeah, of the structural thinkers <laughs> Derrida specifically yeah right I mean I suppose my 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 response in a, in one sense would be uh, to 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 say that Leotard, you know, Leotard is not a, a celebration of atomization. Yeah, Leotard, Leotard is not. Leotard doesn't doesn't celebrate atomization as such. So, you know, I mean, clearly the very condition for for polemic, for difference, for a, a polemicized notion of truth or a polemicized notion of argumentation, of of of, and the promotion of the idea of differences, differences of it. Of opinion uh, requires some form of contact, so it's not it's not Leotard is not a, a sort of individualist at all, and clearly you know what motivates him is is a concern to unearth those things, those elements of struggle, of discourse, of of arguments. Uh, positions that get suppressed in the name of consensus. So you know he's, he he actually sees the value of consensus as as something that is in itself deeply troubling, totalitarian. <laughs> okay, I think I understand. So this brings us on to sort of another big theme in in, um, in Leotard, and that's I think the question of language, right? So I mean, in different uh, in different instances. I think he probably sort of theorizes uh, uh, or offers a theory of language, right? Mm. And this is, I think, is would be fair to say, is also deeply political, um, and that's because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, is that he sees um, Leotard sees uh, sort of public discourse as falling under a sort of a spell of homogeneity, right? Rather than, as you say, maybe say my sort of difference or. Uh, fragmentation or contestation, where where we where we I mean you mentioned fake news, where we where we indulge in things being merely communicated rather than having a sense of authentic meaning. So, is, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't I don't know if this is a, a a response to what you've just said, but I mean, if you were to what what Leotard recognizes or or tries to give an account of. Uh, in his work on language in the 1980s uh, is 
is an account, he tries to give an account of the multiplicity of language, what he called the language games following uh, Wittgenstein. So different ways, if you like, different ways of, of doing things with language, different ways of speaking, different, uh, which serve different purposes. Now, if you take something like Trump's claims, uh, which are eminently contestable because untrue, they pass themselves off or purport to be factual statements. And those statements are contestable with, within the framework of factual argumentation. So there are certain uh, pragmatic protocols, certain criteria that we use to determine whether a factual statement is true. And one can settle any dispute in those. So the, the idea of, 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 of fake news in Trump's sense, what either the news that Trump himself declares to be fake, or the, uh, the, the erroneous, the lies, basically, that he himself tells, all of those can be, can be settled, all of those can be adjudged and settled within, within the accepted rules for determining the validity of a factual statement. And there's, there's nothing problematic about that. And I don't think Lyotard would find anything problematic about that. One might even say, you know, that's political. Those statements can have a political sense uh, in, for Lyotard in, in a limited way. You know, they're political because they're used by politicians and they're used to serve political ends. But Lyotard might also say that there are, there are some statements or somebody may have uh, suffered from not being able to say something or may establish a claim that is not in itself part of the factual register. And in that sense, trying to establish the truth of what they say would, would require a different form of language, a different language game, uh, using different criteria and different protocols and getting that established and recognised as a legitimate way of speaking would be an important thing. Right. So, I mean, there's a very specific instance of this, I think, that sort of Lyotard tackles and that's, he talks about um, Holocaust denial, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, if I recall, Lyotard discusses the question of Holocaust denial and it's less a question, as you say, about verification of factual statements. So, you know, where you might have, I don't know, where you might have a crank saying that the Holocaust uh, doesn't exist or uh, trying to behoove Holocaust survivors to uh, prove the existence of Auschwitz with, with, mm. with hard evidence. So what Lyotard would be saying in that instance is not that it's a question of verification, but that's more a question of it would be legitimacy or who has the right to speak or uh, a question of closing debate down. Yeah, I mean, what what what, what Lyotard, I think, has... has uh, Interest. I mean, there's a lot that he says about the Holocaust that's, that's very interesting, but but one of his points is that he 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 takes on or he examines the arguments of the the, the Holocaust deniers, and in one sense, and it surprises a lot of people. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't immediately condemn the the Holocaust denier outright. I mean, clearly he's 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 not sympathetic in any way to their position but he says you know what that simply denying the holocaust in itself 
So what he says is that the, the Holocaust denier can be judged on the basis of the, ver- the, the validity or the, the evidence for their claims. And that's one thing you can do with, the, with them. And obviously, you know, he thinks they're wrong-headed, as do most people. But what he, what he does want to say in addition about the Holocaust is that it's not simply a matter of establishing how many people were killed. So the significance of the Holocaust goes beyond simple factual claims. And if we reduce it to simple factual claims, and I might be simplifying Lyotard's argument a little bit, but I don't think I'm betraying it. If we reduce it to simple factual factual claims, then we lose something of the specificity of this event which is often proclaimed as a, you know, a, 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 a historical, an event of historical significance. So it changes the way in which we understand the course of history as well. So it's a very famous claim by Adorno that we, we, can, we can no longer understand Europe that produced the Holocaust to be uh, progressing towards, in a rational way, towards uh, uh, an, uh, an, an ethically and politically uh, benevolent end. So, that, so, so there is, that would be a meta-narrative then, I guess, that it would yeah. be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so Western culture, European culture in itself is, is ethical, benevolent, politically good. You know, and so that's, that is actually thrown into question by that. But Lyotard says, yes, yeah, absolutely, you know, that, that is the case. But if we're really going to sort of measure the significance of the Holocaust, then we can't just do that in factual terms. That doesn't in any way really touch or exhaust the significance. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so he's saying that the factual accounts of, uh, the factual verification of these events yeah. is only a very, very limited, gives a very, very limited account of a, uh, what is what actually took place historically, politically? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, now, what then is? Um, I think. What would you say then? That there, is there uh, an ethical remit within Lyotard, or is he? I mean, I guess I'm asking specifically about uh, the question of the inhuman here in in in, uh, in in Lyotard. Well, maybe could you explain briefly what he means by that first, and then we can ask about the ethical remit of it afterwards. Yeah, I mean, his his idea of the inhuman is put forward in in a series of works, probably that around the late eighties, early nineties, and he says uh, that there are two types for Lyotard. He says there are two types of inhumanity that often get confused. So there's there's a sort of inhumanity of the development of the techno scientific system. So that would suggest that that there are dehumanizing effects to the development of science and technology. Yeah, yeah. With and 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 with that, with all of the misery and problems that 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 development entails. So de- you'd say that was dehumanizing. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a second form of inhumanity, and he says that 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 inhumanity is that which in us 
remains opaque and resistant to the idea of those things that we identify with human being rationality, for example, or understanding. And for him, although again, the when we when we 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 are affected by those elements within us that are not susceptible to rationality, that can be painful and disturbing as well. But in a sense, that is the resource by which we are able to or it's it's that which resists the developments of techno science as well and its mastery of the world and its turning us into really sort of you know cybernetic yeah this is in, this is interesting i just saw an article in the newspaper today um where uh, a company in uh, wisconsin <laughs> had a, a chipping party where they uh, they were all uh, uh, well it was a. Uh, it was by consent, thankfully. But it was a. Uh, all the um all the employees uh went to a party where they were uh, chipped by uh by the company. Uh, so it was a sense that uh, yeah, the, the traditional sense of the human was uh, being uh, is being disrupted by I guess technological ends and rational ends. Yeah, and I think you know I think that that in we we. We ourselves are constrained by that. I mean, I don't know that you know that that that's a situation that we can we we can really do much about without becoming some sort of you know we'd, I don't know whether we would go off and become some sort of American recluse shacked up. <laughs> no sense of the monasticism in there. Yeah. Tired it, no. With a gun and a tin of baked beans, <laughs> <laughs> waiting for the apocalypse. Really, so. yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're we're all constrained by that, and you know, to a greater or lesser degree. So uh, the reason I sort of paused and hesitated was uh, there was a, there was a, a I think he was I can't remember whether he was a, a, a sort of cultural theorist uh, or a philosopher, but who was uh, this was about ten years ago, but but wanted to get himself chipped at that time, so he'd, he'd have all these sort of chips put in under his. Armpit or something like that that would enable him to turn lights off automatically. It's <laughs> 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 handy, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, which seemed like a, a slightly, well, a very ridiculous thing at the time. But uh, I guess we're all more or less constrained by it. You know, we all have our mobile phones, we all have our iPads, our laptops. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, this runs against a lot of sort of philosophical thought at the moment. I mean, I mean, I think like say someone like Steven Pinker has a book out recently talking about you know how things are getting progressively better, you know. Yeah. But this is it's quite a it runs anathema to a lot of philosophy. This this thesis doesn't it that there's something about our rationality that is uh, that is bad for us rather than liberating. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's the it's the it's the, one of the central paradoxes of philosophy, but. Uh, you know that rationality seems to be that power that will provide us with our own emancipation by by virtue of our ability to understand the world we're able to not only operate in it and operate efficiently but to to change it to change the world and that means presumably to change it to make it better so we can we can liberate the forces of, of energy from the earth in order to make the world more habitable and hospitable for ourselves, uh, and obviously those those that that 
that understanding of the world or that understanding of what it is through the power of reason does throw up problems and we you know again there'll be a lot of political debate and and uh you know people people will argue over whether that's positive or negative you know whether whether the employment of technology has actually been a benefit to us or whether it's detrimental to us so you know do we cause more problems than we solve by the use of use of technology but you know there's a there's i suppose the there's a, there's a different issue in so far as or a more profound issue insofar as, you know, it, it, it through reason, reason works by positing causes. And as soon as we start to understand the causes of our own being, then we deprive ourselves of any, any freedom whatsoever. So we create ourselves as, as beings that lack any freedom and that are fundamentally constrained. So it did become, I guess this is the ethical dimension of it, we become determined rather than, than free yeah, yeah. Or, and hence inhuman. Yeah, so we, we, we become determined and inhuman, I'm free and inhuman, and that which resists that, that determination is another form of inhumanity. That which is the, if you, were, if, if you identify the human with reason or if you identify the human being with the capacity to use language, it's that within us which seems to be at the limits of the sayable or the thinkable. And that in itself is something that, that again motivates us and drives us on. So, okay. Um, so one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is because I know you've got a you've got a, a great interest in the question of education in a philosophical sense. Is there a link between your work on Lyotard and uh, ancient philosophy and your uh, your interest in education? Or does that motivate it? Yeah. There's a there's well. There's, a, there's an intrinsic link, I think, between philosophy and education. So the, you know, the, the idea of philosophy, as I said, you, what Plato seeks to do is establish the true, not particular truths, but to establish the true. And in order to do that, that requires a movement or of the of the understanding, or as Plato would call it, the soul. Well, is this that, what he calls metanoia, or the turning of the soul, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, turning a turning around of the soul. So again, you know what I said about Plato is that you know Plato it it's, it sees that the correlative of establishing truth is establishing a community of the truth as well, and that's what makes him political. And the way in which you do that, it, establish that community, is get to get people to look at the world in the same way. And that requires a turning around of the soul. And that turning around of the soul, that movement of the soul, or movement of the understanding, is what we call education. So education can only take place in a group, effectively, then? Yeah, it depends, it depends a little bit what you mean about, by that. You know, sure, I mean, obviously, yeah. you can have an educational situation that occurs between one person or another. And it's, you know, it would be, it would be possible for somebody... With with certain provisos, you know, so I don't think you could talk about somebody, you know, a, a, a child, a natural child, one of these, what are they called, the child's children that get lost and, you know, grow up in the company of wolves or whatever, <laughs> and then discovered, uh, very, very popular, I think, in the 19th century, but, mm. uh, you know, you could, with, with, with certain provisos, you could imagine somebody educating themselves, 
and even within with certainly at once we've acquired certain skills and abilities that's what we expect of people so you know at a certain stage in the educational system people people are required to to teach themselves they do a phd and that's more or less what a phd is but but yeah you you know broadly it would be difficult to think of an education that, that 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 uh, occurred in isolation. Yeah, so even when you, yeah. So even when you, when you, when you say study in isolation, you're in, you're sort of uh, entering yourself into an intellectual community or an intellectual history or an intellectual set of ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, there's there's very different ways in which one can account for the process of education, or even say what education is. You know, education, you could say, is an enrichment or a deepening of experience. And that means an, an opening out of the world. Uh, and you, or you can say, you know, edu- education is that process by which you learn to look at yourself from another perspective. So there does always seem to be an otherness involved in education as well. It's not, you know, I think it would only be only be a very sort of rigid Cartesian that could understand education as a model of this, the 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 understanding coming only to understand itself because it encounters nothing else. Bad news for the autodidacts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the um, okay, so I guess then trying to bring it back to the question of Leotard then is like in sort of contemporary education, perhaps. Do you see? This what you know what Leotard what we've been talking about what Leotard calls the the logic of performativity the logic of efficiency is that in some way diminishing the the practice of education? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Yes, I think it is. I mean, if you mean in within within its institutional settings, then then yes, I do. I do think it is. I mean, we, you know, we we it it tends to be the case that. We concentrate on performance in a very narrow sense, with 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 children and students. Yeah, so we talk about That's league tables and all of this thing that parents worry about. Yeah, and they they fixate on the results as well. You know, so the 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 end of the end of their three years at university, what matters to them, and and seems to matter in a very singular way now is the result that they get a two one or a first or a two two. So you would be. Skeptical of sort of an over instrumental approach in education. I'd be deeply skeptical of an over uh, an overly instrumental approach in education. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the, if you were to ask me, I don't think that this is a neutral or un, unquestionable definition of, of 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 education. But you know, it's it is historic. I mean, it's, I'm just going to repeat. Plato, it's inducing a change in somebody. It's making making them change, and I don't mean you know the mere acquisition of facts or information. That changes nothing. You know we can we can we can you know you can tell me a bit of information. I can remember it, read it, remember it, and forget it, and nothing really has changed whether I remember it or forget it. it doesn't affect me in any way how I understand myself or my relation to the world, how my 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 relation to my own being. Education in the true sense is a transformation of one's being, but that doesn't really fit very well with the the imperatives and diktats of of, uh, 
the current neoliberal government or the framework, the, more broadly, the neoliberal framework within which education functions. In fact, that's a moment of opacity and nuisance. That's what Lyotard would say, you know, is being written out of the system. The, the, the system, the educational system's not particularly interest in, interested in the agonies of the student that is struggling to understand something. The individual tutor might be, but the but the system and the framework within which you function isn't really that little bit of misery <laughs> is is only a nuisance. We have lead tables as well, so not only are we assessed by are our students assessed and get a mark, we get a mark for for the performance of our students, and then we're graded by our students as well, who are now buying a product. And obviously, a consumer who is made to feel miserable and unhappy is an unsatisfied is, consumer. Is, is an unsatisfied <laughs> consumer. Yeah, so you might say it's actually very anti-educational. So, what do you think? Then, is an, the system uh, doesn't want people to learn. <laughs> so, what do you think is a, a I guess, an ideal educational encounter then? Or what would be a, a positive sense of education where you can induce that self-transformation or that uh, change of the self? I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, that'd be, that's something that's very diff- difficult to describe. I think it's quite singular. Uh, I mean, I think what, 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 what you can have is, is uh, a learning situation and learning environment, a classroom, a seminar, a tutorial, that would be uh, would not be inhospitable to 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 the movement of education to, to an actual educational encounter. But yeah, I think it's I think I think it's 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 singular. I mean, I don't think you can legislate for it. I think it it, it requires a sensitivity uh, and commitment on part of both the student and the tutor to for it to arise or happen. Uh, but it's rare. I think it's a it's a very rare thing as well. So, sounds a lot like uh, John Dewey in the sense that education is an activity, education is a practice, is what you're talking about, or an event, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't even say you know I don't I don't know that you you know I don't even know I it, it does sound a bit like Dewey, and I, and and I'm a great admirer of Dewey as well. I think he's a brilliant philosopher. Uh, politically, maybe a little suspect, <laughs> but but. Yeah, uh, 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 a really a, a very insightful and profound thinker at the same time, especially in, in relation to the question of education. But to speak of it as an event, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I don't know that it's it, it it would be something that would happen in a eureka moment. You can't say, you know, very it would be very rare. Sometimes it does happen. I think that you know, I can I can remember experiences I've had with teachers which have profoundly affected me but I can also remember that you know it's it, it can be a very gradual process can't it it's not a gradual it's not an accretion either it's just there seems to be one day where something has changed it just clicks yeah yeah something just clicks and it can you know it's laborious and painful you can spend months even years you know and again that's something that I don't know that our education system is particularly hospitable to the idea that, that a real educational change, a real transformation, the moment of, of education, that leading to somewhere else, uh, you, you know, takes a long time. They want it to happen quickly. That's interesting because the strict word, word well, the, word, the, the strict sense of an education is that it ought to be a, a discipline of some kind, you know, something 
that requires repetition, work, labor, and as you say, agony. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, has to hurt. I mean, I think that, you know, <laughs> I think the subjects that we study or that are taught at universities and school, well, universities are called disciplines uh, because they require discipline. You know, <laughs> they're very monastic, perhaps very scholastic, monastic idea of education. Mm. But yeah, they do require discipline, and I think it's a physical. You know, it's not merely intellectual discipline as well. You know, there's a problem in thinking about education in terms of an activity of the intellect alone. And I think Dewey's really good on that. Dewey's, Dewey says, you know, education occurs uh, uh, bodily. What, so what do you mean by bodily, Keith, in regard to education? I mean, yeah. the, you know, the, the, I mean, something quite banal, I suppose, in the first instance, that, you know, the person that, that studies sits is the person that sits in a chair or moves around a room, who walks, who talks, who interacts with other people, who looks at the world. Has to stay gonna, healthy. If gonna, yeah, if we're going to be educated, there's got to be. There's also got to be something to know, and that something to know is not simply, you know, the contents of our own mind. It's not just making patent what is latently within us, but it is an actual encounter with other people and the world, and you know. So yeah. And the, as you say, the person who does that is tired, energised, so on and so forth, bored. But, you know, the moment of education obviously comes is, is, you know, perhaps that moment where you become excited about something. You, you become engaged with it. And that, that takes, that's, that's a person who's passionate, who feels, mm-hmm. who understands, as, you know, in that sense of not merely intellectual understanding, but stands next to something, engages with it. So you're so then that that's probably sort of in a leotard sense when you have a, a sense of affect or or when you in an education context when you can mix passion and labor you then have maybe something special perhaps yeah yeah I think yeah absolutely I mean again you're not gonna you're not gonna learn you've got to you've got to want to learn to learn <laughs> and that that does require passion and passion in the sense. You know, both in the sense of something active and passive, that which drives us, and and allowing ourselves to be open, to be affected, to be properly affected by something. You know, again, so it's, I don't know if I've explained it properly. You know, but that idea of an, you know, education is a mere intellectual exercise that isn't isn't really opening us up to the world, allowing us to encounter anything. It's sort of, you know, what what you get then is a really perverse sense of learning. Well, they're quite stifling, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Really stifling, stifling and distorting. Okay, so I think I got uh, I got just a couple more questions, Keith, before we finish. Yeah. Um, I think. Okay, so you've talked about education. You've talked about Leotar. Um, is, do you think? What do you think is the relevance of Leotar then today? Do you think he still has a relevance? Either is it political, cultural, even educational. Yeah, I, yeah, I suppose I, I suppose I do. Yeah, I can't. That's a, it's a difficult question for me to answer. But yeah, if I if I if I, if I, if I were to not be cynical and answer it, then yes, I do think he has a relevance. I think his 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 writings on on arts uh, and politics do draw us to those things that we're in danger of losing uh, in terms of current ideology and political practices. 
So yes, I do think he is, and I think he's, you know, perhaps even beyond that, beyond anything that he specifically says, there's just the provocation of uh, of a thinker who was committed to to social justice, uh, and it was committed to to change and to to the ability of of of, of philosophy and perhaps even the ability of teaching. Of, to 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 produce change as well, or to to yeah. encourage people to, to improve the material conditions of uh, humankind. Well, I don't know if you'd say improve the material conditions <laughs> of humankind. Might, he might have he might have some hesitation over the over the idea of the improvement of uh, matter. <laughs> but yeah, brought yeah. Okay, and the last question. Yeah, clearly he was. You know, he was not at the end of his career. Lyotard was not a Marxist. Uh, in, in as much as, you know, and you would expect this of a philosopher. You don't expect philosophers necessarily to be dogmatic adherence to previous theories. And, you know, he was he was critical of many aspects of, of Marxism and of Marx. But, you know, he, he seemed to hold quite steadfastly. Maybe, you know, this would be contested by some Leotard scholars, but my view is he held quite, quite steadfastly to the idea that the proletariat were were wronged by by capitalism. Okay, so uh, that's a good place to end, I think, Keith. I have one last thing to ask you. Is there um, is there anything you've read recently that uh, would be helpful for our audience to, uh, to, to, to read, or any, any, any poetry, any music, or any articles even, that would help make sense of the things we've been talking about today? Yeah, I think so. Uh, you, you and I both uh, uh, have been reading Richard Sennett, and uh, Richard oh, yeah. Sennett is a, 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 a sociologist or a thinker, a philosopher, whose whose work I greatly greatly admire. Uh, so, so the corrosion of character. Oh, that's a great book. That that's a great uh, old book. That yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, you know gives again again a fairly pessimistic diagnosis of. Uh, what we've lost as uh, as a culture or a tradition within the West, really, uh, in terms of character. So the you know Senate's thesis seems to be to me that uh, character requires the character is a virtue or is made up of virtues, and and to be uh, to have a good character or to even have character requires uh, a, a sense of our own longitudinal development and our own longitudinal goals and and the the short-termism and rapidity of flexible capitalism and the system that constrains us all deprives us of that opportunity to think of our own development towards long-term goals and that means to 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 have a sense of our own characters really which is we're losing Okay, Keith, thank you very much. Come on, Jimmy, you got a fight against when this balloon of yours goes out. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by Il Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.